Welcome to the Love and Leadership Podcast. My name is Laura Ike. I am joined as always by my very favorite, very favorite co-host, Mike McFall. <laughs> Mike, how are you doing? <laughs> Good, Laura. Thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave out the word only and say, yeah, I'm your favorite. That's awesome. As we <laughs> as we do, right? It. As we do. As we uh, do. So I, I I've been struck this morning and I've been contemplating the I was with a bunch of students last night. In a, in, a, in a relatively informal engagement, college students, uh, and, you know, able to kind of free flow and riff with them. And, and I, was, I was really kind of struck by the, um, their approach to employment and, and how, I mean, these are really bright, bright kids who are, you know, going to a, an amazing school and, you know, they're, but they're so insecure about oh. the process. And it's like, it's like the employer is this, this, um, you know, all knowing, you know, like czar and, and they're just <laughs> trying to figure out how to fit their piece of the puzzle into that. It's like, it's like, no, like you all are magic. Like y'all are like beautiful and any employer would be so honored to have you. And so why is the mentality a position of weakness? Is it? Yeah, go ahead. Well, is it like, do they have jobs right now or are they thinking about like the, the job they dream of in 10, 15 years and thinking that it needs to be right now? Cause I know I remember in college, I felt all of the pressure, Going to a liberal arts private school, I was like, my the expectation put on me is that I come out of this with a really well-paying, secure job that I then do for the next fifty years of my life or whatever. And I felt I felt all that pressure, and Are I was a music serious? major. That was, that's what. Yeah. That's, wait, coming out of your family, how is that possible? I mean, oh. your family owns small a small business, entrepreneurial. Yeah. Like that was really the expectation for you going I mean, to. Yeah. And I'm not sure it was my family. I actually think I I went to a private high school too. That was a college preparatory school. And it's very much like you have to get the great grades in high school in order to get the great grades in college, in order to get the great job right after college. That was the like expectation for why I should have done my homework and I didn't. (laughs) But that's a different story. Right. It's such bullshit. I just, that mentality drives me absolutely crazy. You know, is that, is that what the, the, maybe they're yeah, talking maybe. about though? Okay. And, and, and I just sit there, I'm like, wait, wait, y'all aren't thinking about things like, uh, how do I want to live? Um, where do I want to live? Like, uh, what do I want my, my day to feel like? Do you know, right. like, like all we're, all we're, all we're going to look at is getting a job that pays you well. And by the yeah. way, like that job coming out of college I mean, in my mind is like, who cares? You know, just get some more experience. Like, go do something cool. No one says that though in college. I don't think. I don't think they do either. But I was like, I was like an alien last night saying this kind of stuff to them, you know, like a truly an alien. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's like, yeah, go do a job for a while, you know, and like, and like learn some stuff and then go do a different job for a while and learn some stuff. And then, you know, eventually, hopefully you settle into something. Okay. So here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. 
this, 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 I won't, I won't name any names, but I was having a conversation with a college president and, and, and he said, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Parents think about one thing. Like 85% of parents, number one survey issue is how much money is my kid going to make coming out of your college? Okay. And, and, and then the disconnect for him is the faculty at the college, it's like 7% say that how much money a kid makes coming out of college is important. The faculty don't give a rip about how much money kids make coming out of college, right? They want the kids to learn. They want to have them to have a good experience in college. But what is, what is going on with parents? Like, how, like your number one concern about your child's college experience is how much money they're going to make coming out of school. Like what is wrong with you people? Yeah. I think that can happen, especially with the parents who are paying for college though, because they're literally trying to figure out what their return on investment is going to be or something like that. Like if they've helped them pay for school at all, they want to know that it literally pays off. And that kid will be able to live on their own and afford their own housing and afford their own food and be safe and secure. I'm sure, like, I'm sure that's part of the thinking too, but I think that's, I think that's the parent thing. So am I coming at this from some weird privileged place? Like, I don't, I don't think kids should be worrying about like um, whether they make 68,000 or 42,000 or 31,000 or 95,000. <laughs> Like, is that because I have some level of privilege or something? Because like, I think that's the last thing in the world a kid should be thinking about. Like, I don't think that people should be worrying about money, but it seems like everybody else is worried about money. Uh, and, and, you know, my perspective on that is, is I think people don't live in a space of abundance and they're so wrapped up so tight around money that money's this like crazy negative energy in their life. And then money, to, you know, and I'm, I know I'm getting a little out there on that, but it's like, it's like, I do believe money's an energy, you know? And, and like, I've never worried about money my whole life. And as you know, and, and you, you are forced to live with me professionally on this whole deal. Like, like I can spend money, like it's nothing, yeah. you know, like I can rip through. And so uh, anyway, um, I worry, I just worry yeah. that, that the college experience should be so magical and beautiful and and we should be focused on you know the the things that make life fulfilling you yeah. know not how much money you're gonna make so as yeah. we'll put off by i think all it's that. both i mean i think it's both i do think it's a relatively privileged position which i think i was into where i knew i had a like parental safety net um there if I got into too much trouble, but also the expectation was very much on me from my mid teens that I would be working and I would be making my own money if I wanted to buy the fun things and everything like that. So, um, I think it's a little, little privileged position to be able to not worry that much, um, versus I know I had some friends who didn't have the safety net kind of situation and, uh, they worried constantly about where they're, you know, how they were going to afford groceries the next week or how they were going to afford rent next month. So yes, I think there is some amount of privilege involved in being able to not worry about money or worry about money less, uh, or know that you have a safety net in place if you were to get into some sort of trouble. So there is privilege there, but I also do, I hope kids in college are having the chance to have their perspective broadened and dream a little and, find new things that they love and find new friendships and everything like that. Cause I think that all influences their future in a, in a 
bigger way than their current financial situation, whatever that may be. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I get a little sideways on all of it. Uh, I just have higher, higher, I really, I think we should be focused on creating the future leaders of the world, not focused on how much money somebody's going to make coming out of school. You know, like that's, that's my take in its, in its broadest form. You know, the other thing that happened last night that I thought was interesting is, is Mm -hmm. a student asked me, he said, so I'm really interested in being with a company where my values align and what the culture of that company is like and so on. Like, how do you suggest in a, in an interview that I try to figure all that out? And I said, well, just ask them for three references or four references, ask them for somebody who's Within been there the company. two yeah. years and somebody who's been here four years and seven years and 12 years. Right. And then call them and talk to them yep. and talk to them about their experience. And, and the student was like, I can, you can do that. And I'm like, I <laughs> yeah. think so. Like I, you know, I guess I've never heard of somebody doing that before, but like, absolutely. Like, why not? You know, and, totally. and see like, is the stuff they're telling you in the interview process, is it real? Right. And even asking if, you know, if you aren't feeling bold enough to ask the company for references, which by the way, there's probably most companies are going to fumble a little bit in that moment because they might not be prepared to give you references, but give them a minute and they should be able to do that. Um, But you can also ask, you know, what are your core values as a company and how does that show up every day at work? And what are your cultural values? What, uh, you know, if, if it is a company that claims to have a higher purpose or a vision uh, like ours does, ask them about that. Uh, and they should be able to say it right off the bat. And it's actually, if they can't say it right off the bat, if they can't, you know, name their values or name their purpose, but they claim to have one that might be a sign. Uh, so <laughs> just keep asking. I think the questions that the interviewee asks the interviewers are sometimes even more important than the whole rest of the interview as someone who sits in on a fair amount of interviews. So I love that. I love that they asked that too. That's very yeah, I thought uh, it was great. astute of them. Yeah. All right. So speaking of brilliant things uh, and people, <laughs> that's that's my segue to our guest today because uh, we have a beautiful human being, Katrina Gazarian, uh, on the pod today. Uh, she is a CEO and company owner of an, of an HR consulting company, but I feel like the picture people have in their minds of a CEO and business owner of an HR consulting company is probably not the accurate picture to, to who she is. So uh, we need to jump right in because we need her to introduce herself and tell us all about uh, what she's got going on. And I think this is going to be a really fun, interesting, deep, powerful conversation. Yeah. So let's jump into it. One. Let's do it. Agree. Let's do it. All right, friends. Are we ready to jump in? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Welcome, Katrina. Uh, We could introduce you, but I think uh, you do a much better job of introducing yourself. So if you could kick us off today by telling us who are you, where are you from, and what is it that you do? I feel like all three of those questions change every single day. (laughs) (laughs) This will be an exciting Um, answer then. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say the attachments I have um, are that my name is Katrina Gazarian. I am the CEO of Game Day HR. I was born and raised in Southern California, um, Los Angeles County specifically, um, and what we do at Game Day HR is we are improving the workplace um, through 
you know, very results oriented and strategic initiatives with small and mid-sized businesses. Awesome. That was real good. <laughs> uh, very clear. Uh, what Talk us through sort of how you got here in life. And I mean, hit us with the highlights of maybe where, where, you, where you came from, how you ended up in the HR field. Uh, what did you do before becoming CEO of your own company kind of thing? How'd you get here? Yeah, I think that it is still shocking to a lot of people in my life that I run an HR company. Um, because it probably feels like the antithesis of who I am as a person, or at least the reputation that HR tends to have of being by the book and sterile and rules oriented, where I believe that they feel like I break all the rules. I am not sterile, quite dirty in some ways (laughs) to keep it PG. (laughs) Um, so Really, I would say that um, I started my career in um, retail banking out of high school. Um, I was working for commercial banks. Um, I was a teller, then became a personal banker. I was really great at sales. um, And I started climbing up pretty high um, in a quick amount of time. And then the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 happened and really just completely obliterated any progress that I had made because as one of the younger employees, um, you know, it was, I was going to be one of the first ones out. And so I spent about 10 months um, looking for a job and to keep it short, it essentially took me about six years to make what I was making prior to the financial crisis. So I was about, I've always felt about six years behind (laughs) in what I was trying to accomplish. Um, you know, I, I joke around about it today, but I was rocking like a 550 FICO score (laughs) because I had to let all of my credit cards, um, go into debt. And yeah, it was just, it was a very humbling experience. And so, During that time, um, my old basketball coach, um, he coached me when I was a freshman, offered me a coaching position at the school that he was at, and I took it. And that was kind of the start of me really diving into sports again, um, playing, you know, different capacities, not as a player anymore. And um, from being a coach, I went on to officiating high school and college women's basketball Um, And unfortunately, in the sports industry, we're just not paid enough Um, unless you have some kind of executive, you know, position at the league or a team, um, you're not making a livable wage. And so I had become a mother and I essentially needed to get a real job (laughs) um, with benefits. And so I got into recruiting and I was able to use you know, what I've learned as a coach um, and an official and was really good at recruiting and identifying talent for specific teams. Um, A client of mine poached me from the recruiting firm that I was at. And I essentially started recruiting for all of their portfolio companies. Um, As they were creating new brands, they needed more HR support, um, you know, documentation, Um, performance management. And I really learned um, 
by myself essentially how to do all of that and, and really take responsibility and all of that. And then, um, I felt, you know, my daughter was about three years old and I just didn't have any time with her that I would have liked to have. And so there was really a choice of coming from a, a workaholic mother. Um, I had to, I chose, I didn't really want to follow in that path. And I love my mom and I definitely get my work ethic from her. But I do think that um, at the time, there just wasn't the level of autonomy that we have today in the workplace. And so she just missed out on a lot of things in my life, a lot of my growing up. And so um, when my employer at the time didn't approve me changing my schedule, I essentially said that, you know, I'm going to go build my own book of HR business in 30 days. And so I gave a 30 days notice. And on my last week there, I essentially pitched them my new services and they ended up taking it. And um, they're actually my clients for seven years after that. And that was kind of the start of Game Day HR. So cool. I had no idea about the the sports element of your journey. I'd heard some of the other pieces, but. Yeah, no, I, I had dreams of being the first female um, head coach in the NBA. Um, You know, eventually that evolved to wanting to own an NBA team, which is something Mike and I have talked about here and there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and recent, more recently, I would say just you know, um, attaining knowledge in like in the women's sports side, I've realized it doesn't even have to be the NBA. I I think even a women's sports team would be really effective, um, where I can use that team as an example of, you know, what company culture should look like in the sports industry. Oh man. And there's so much we could dive into there as far as leadership and the results, uh, not being about, you know, business and financial, but more about people and performance and thriving. And, oh, that's exciting. We, we probably will dive more into that a little bit later, but I did, I wanted to dive in because right at the, um, sort of post-banking, post-sports, you, uh, you talked about, you mentioned that HR gets bad rap. And I feel like that's something, uh, that, you combat very directly through the way that you run your business now. Um, and so can you just unpack that a little bit? Like what is the current uh, almost stigma around HR in the world? Cause I think it's changed a little bit, but what do you see as the current stigma around HR and what are you doing within your company to change that uh, expectation with people sort of one at a time, one company at a time? Well, you know, I've definitely been in situations where I was the disgruntled employee and I felt like leadership or HR had an opportunity um, to make things better um, for me in the workplace. And they really just failed to do that. And I'll I'll give you an example. Um, I was when I was still working in banking, I had became an assistant coach for with a friend of mine. And, you know, at some point my manager at the time came to me and was essentially like, you have to choose. Um, and, and I felt like, you know, I know you all are into Enneagrams as like an eight, which is the challenger. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. Cause I'm going to do the other thing by the way. <laughs> and so, and so I really think that that caused a rift between my, the management team and myself, because um, I felt like they were just undermining 
you know, what my dreams were. And I, I thought that if they had taken the position of supporting me and fulfilling my dreams, um, that the award from that would be exponential. Would I be working for them still? Probably not, but I would prefer family and friends to go work there. And, you know, you have to kind of think about the, the cumulative cost of, you know, one bad a disgruntled employee and, and the cost to the employer brand that that could be year after year. And till this day, it's been 14 years, right? And we're still talking about it. And so, you know, I thought that they missed some opportunities there. And um, so I really, when I got into HR, I definitely had to learn the technicalities of HR. But one thing that I did have was the people portion of it. And so this idea that you have to be liked or respected, um, I was really, I was really focused on turning that upside down. And I was really focused on proving that I can be liked and respected, which is what I did as a basketball coach to, you know, 16, 17 year old girls. Um, and, and so I really feel in HR, you can learn all of the compliance things and you can get all of the certifications, which by the way, I have no formal training. I have no formal education I and I don't ask. have a single HR certificate. Wow. wow, Yeah. Um, and I would say humbly that I'm probably one of the top HR consultants in the nation. And that's not because I have formal training. It's because I love people and people know that I love them and they know that I am focused on their success and their happiness, no matter who they are. And so I think HR has an opportunity to really have a passion for the success of every single person in the organization um, and really tie that into the business objectives. I don't feel that HR has a strong business acumen as a, as an industry right now, I think they're very focused on keeping organizations out of the courtroom and paperwork and documentation, but they don't understand, you know, PNL, uh, reports. They don't understand balance sheets. They're not tracking certain OKRs or KPIs. They don't, you know, they don't even know what their turnover is. And so I just feel like of all the departments, HR seems to be the less, the least, like analytical. And I think that we need to see more data and more analytics um, to support the feelings that you have, yeah. you know? That was so good. That's, uh, you. I think you're maybe like my hero. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're my hero. I saw you dancing in some suit a couple months ago on the stage. <laughs> I mean, so I'm someone who I oversaw our HR department with no certifications and with no qualifications and and just doing my best. I don't think I was the greatest at it, uh, which is thankfully why we have found a brilliant HR person for our company. Um, but the fact that you've built all this knowing, I I just personally know what the what the eyebrow raises can be like when you don't have the, you know, Sherm CP after your name and everything like that. So I think that's just so much even more admirable that you're just like, I'm just going to build this and I'm going to be awesome mm -hmm. at it. 
And that's going to be the proof. <laughs> I don't need letters yeah. after Or I'm name. lazy, right? And I didn't want to sit there and think. <laughs> I don't think it's that. I'm, I'm lazy sure. and I'm arrogant. And I actually don't feel like listening to people <laughs> who are less intelligent than I am is really what it was. <laughs> I don't think there's any any lazy or arrogant in you. <laughs> so so can, can, can I dive in? Yeah, of course. All right, all right. Head, head first? Yeah. I'm, here we go. Here we go. So, so... I, I, in a, in a talk I give, I state that it's not about how hard you work. It's about optimal performance. And, and I've got myself into some hot water in talks from people who think that's an irresponsible message to send other people. But I make the statement, if an NFL football team or insert WNBA basketball team, if they thought that making their players practice six and a half, seven hours a day on the floor, plus doing video, plus doing, would help them win games, they would do it. But they don't, right? They don't. And so why, in your mind, why do we as managers of corporate America think that 60-hour work weeks or 40-hour work weeks are the answer when it's about optimal optimal performance at the end of the day, right? And so why is there that disconnect between like, let's say a sports team where they're really truly trying to get these people to perform at their highest level possible and they make them work two to three to four hours a day. And then in corporate America, somehow we think 50 or 60 hours a week is the right move. It's interesting you you use that as an example because I know over the last couple of years, NBA players have spoken out about the length of their practices and the practices being too long and that being a possibility of why they're being injured uh, more. I, I believe it was uh, Leonard from, I think he was at the Spurs at the time or still there. I think he was very outspoken about that. So it's interesting you bring that up because that actually is a, a topic of contention in the NBA specifically about duration of practices, but how long, how long are the duration of practices? Because I know like hockey players that I know that play professionally and football players, they talk about how the hardest transition after retirement is going from working two, three hours a day to working eight, nine hours a day in the, uh, and how they just don't have the free time they once had and so on. And even college players moving into the pros will say they don't know what to do with all their free time. Because they used to be a student and an athlete. Now they're just an athlete. So um, maybe the NBA is a little bit of a different animal. Maybe they do practice a lot harder than the other sports. But like I know hockey and football, they're, they're, not, they're not grinding away six hours a day practicing or whatever. Yeah, I think that they're doing a couple of hours of strength and conditioning plus on court, you know, X's and O's type drills. Plus, you know, they're in recovery um, with physical therapists. Um, so I, I believe it's like an all day. It's like, it is like a full-time job for them, or at least it was at the time. I haven't really gone back in to see what the result of that was, but I believe companies are really kind of stuck on this hours, um, and, and work how many hours somebody needs to work because they aren't really taking the time to understand what optimal, uh, performance even looks like. And so I'll give you an example um, and this is something that I say all the time. I don't care if it takes you two hours to get it done. Um, as long as it's done, take the rest of the day off. I don't really care. Um, but, but that's because I've, I've really put in key metrics 
Um, so that way, when those metrics aren't being hit, I can go back to the employee and say, hey, maybe we need to spend more time on this throughout the day um, and, and still give them the autonomy to figure that out. Um, I think that I think that there is this it's interesting because a lot of leadership complain about employees, you know, acting like children um, or, you know, employees um, aren't grateful, which are very common things that we say to our kids <laughs> sometimes. And and so I find that interesting because, you know, you're treating them like kids. Right. So it's 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 kind of what you get, right. you know. And so and so my employees, I don't treat them like kids. I treat them like adults and I don't care what time they work um, because it's very it's outlined what needs to happen and what um, success looks like for their position. So I think if company leaders really put some time and look, it's a huge time investment, the bigger the company the longer it's going to take you to really figure this out. You have to look at company objectives as a whole, trickle those down to departments, trickle that down into kind of mid-level management and so on and so on. It takes time to do that. Um, however, if you did do that, then I think not only will you experience more of a work-life balance with your employees, but you'll actually achieve those objectives because employees actually know how success is being measured. I can't tell you how many times... We've seen, you know, performance reviews and an employee goes into their performance review thinking like they're crushing it, right? Only for the manager to tell them that they haven't been, but they've never once talked about it. They never brought it up. And it's because their performance isn't being measured um, by OKRs or KPIs. It's being measured by like feelings and stuff, which is um, the reason why we have such a largely disengaged workforce in the U.S. Um, I've, I've written about this, you know, these reports are as high as 84%. And so I do think that that's the disconnect is corporate leaders aren't really taking the time to create the three to five OKRs that each position is responsible for and then putting those vehicles in place on how those are going to be measured, um, whether they're being achieved or not. Well, there's a pretty common fear, I think it's a fear, amongst uh, bosses. I'll just put bosses all in the same category, where uh, the fear is everybody has different individual needs, what you just described, where they might need different times of day. They might need to um, design their day differently. I have someone on my team who loves to start their day like not being talked to and reading and writing and that type of thinking. And then if, if they can do that, then they are set up for success for the rest of their day. They're going to be able to work better for the rest of their day. I have another person who needs to be working for a longer day so that she can take more frequent brain breaks and <laughs> escape the world a, a, a few more times. So she'll disappear throughout the day and that sort of thing. And, and our, our world of flexibility allows for that. But I know the fear with bosses is if I allow for different things with different people, that somehow that will be perceived as unfair rather than in my mind, it's actually more fair, uh, that, that individuals are being, uh, given what they need. They're being given the opportunity for what they need. They're being they're They can design the best work environment for them. Again, as long as they know what's expected of them, they know what's needed from them throughout the day and that kind of thing. But there's, there's a fear across the organizations that if I do things differently for different people, I'll get in trouble as a boss or I'll be perceived as favoriting someone or whatever. Do you, do you encounter that same fear? 
I absolutely do. And I'm going to get really woo woo about that and, and tell you that we fear ourselves and others. And so if their fear is other people will judge them or, you know, their team will think that they're not being fair, it's because they're judging themselves and they're judging their team for wanting these um, different flexibilities. So look, at the end of the day, I don't care. <laughs> I, you know, I don't care. I'm going to make sure each of my, my team members have what they need to be successful, whether they're working at midnight or um, they're working, you know, 45 hours a week or they're working 20 hours a week, but getting it done. I don't really care. Um, you know, the only the only time somebody I think is really truly going to have a problem with it is because they're just not doing what they they need to be doing. Um, and so, and and when you cater to that, when you when you cater to those types of um, personalities, um, and you're not being truthful to them and saying like, "Hey, Laura, I think your ego is in the way on this. Like, what's really going on for you?" Um, then you're constantly going to be victim to that type of criticism. And I just choose not to engage with that type of criticism at all. Yeah. I need a little more Enneagram eight in my life (laughs) as as a nine. (laughs) If you looking at corporate America, midsize, midsize business, what's been the single best improvement over the last decade? From your perspective, you know, it's interesting because when I left, you know, um, being an employee, it was really because of the lack of flexibility. Well, that's not the case anymore. And so I even went through my own, you know, um, dark tunnel um, where I had to really um, unattach from this term CEO or business owner or entrepreneur. Um, because I realized that the, the, the reasons why I became one aren't really, aren't as relevant today because now we have hybrid workforce. And, um, so I think that that has probably been the biggest improvement over the last 10 years is the flexibility. I get some companies are still pretty, um, strict on some of those things, but they're trying to be, but you know, they're going to have a hard time, um, you know, being desirable to top talent, they're going to have a hard time um, retaining their good employees or employees in all shapes and sizes. And so I do think that that has in the last 10 years, at least in my um, perception, my lens, that has been the biggest improvement is, is the flexibility in schedule and the flexibility in where you can work. What's one of those uh, leadership, traditional leadership things that still need to just die? (laughs) always ask that so harshly. I have to find a nicer way to ask that, but there's old, old habits die hard. What are, what are one of those that, that just need to be let go of or a leadership myth or, or one of those? Gosh, um, there's a couple, but I would say uh, the one that stands out to me the most is like employees having to keep their personal and professional lives separate. Um, and so I, I, I think that that is not only it's, it's proven that it's been pretty toxic, um, but it's also been proven that you can't. <laughs> and, and so um, oftentimes you, you, you see these like hard charging um, business influencers um, 
and you, you know, and they say all the things, but then you look at their life and you realize um, they have no kids, you know, they may not even be married. Um, they're mostly male, you know, they're mostly white males um, saying that. And so you look at that and you realize um, they just don't understand. They don't, they, they, they're pretty one dimensional. Right. And, and you look at these influencers who say like, you know, you need to put your friends and family aside. Um, you need to say no to everything in order to be successful. And, and again, you, you see that, um, they have no kids. Uh, they probably don't have very many friends. And I always, I, I heard this on chef's table, um, during the pandemic. And I believe it was Christina Tosi. She's the founder of Milk Bar. Mm-hmm. And um, she was like a workaholic. And and I remember something that she said on that documentary. And she said, um, it's so one dimensional, like it's so boring <laughs> um, for, for you to only be able to talk about work um, and, and everything revolve around work. Like you're a boring person. And I kind of look at people who are that way. And I agree, like, you know, as soon and I know people personally, it's like as soon as you see them, it's like, oh, how are you? Oh, work. Like, oh God, <laughs> like go do, like go streak or something, <laughs> like go get some excitement in your life because, um, your work is like, it's so one dimensional. And so I think that this idea that you have to leave your personal stuff at the door, um, is very antiquated and it needs to go. Yeah. Well, and I think that the one dimensional piece of it, I think it makes you a, a poor leader, frankly. And if you're going to lead people in the topic of this, of this podcast is love and leadership. And it's really hard to love someone and be empathetic of somebody's situation. If you can't relate to it in any way, meaning if your only perspective is work and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, what somebody that works with you ends up in a situation with a child or, you know, that, that you, you, you can't lead that person. I don't think, I think it's very difficult to lead that person without having any kind of understanding around, um, around it. So I think, you know, that perspective of, you know, workaholic, like I've always said workaholics, they don't, ha- <laughs> workaholics don't have good relationships. They don't love their spouses or they don't like their lives or they don't like their friends. They don't like their families. Cause like, there's no way in the world I would give up my life to become a workaholic. I mean, never. And I've always said, if I, if it took being a workaholic to make my business successful, I wouldn't want the business. Mm. So anyway, I, I think that that, I, you know, I love that talking through like the one dimensional aspect of many leaders and that's just flawed. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a flawed approach. It's a stressful approach because I think that they, expect everyone to prioritize work the way that they do. And so if you don't, then they judge you and they're upset and they're frustrated. So I feel like it's stressful for them to think that way and to have those expectations. And I recently had a conversation with a friend who his life partner, um, he's like the management. It's a, it's a small company that, that they run and his partner is like, um, on the team. And there was an issue that came up and he told me, well, I just want to be like unbiased in this situation. And I'm like, 
pro, no. Like if you, let me tell you, if the choice is this job or her, you choose her, that is it. That is it. And so there, there really is no choice. Um, a job is a job. You'll find another one, um, but you won't, you know, it's very hard to replace those meaningful relationships in your life. I've had, I've had that conversation with a few people over time where it's, it's, I think, um, workaholic, workaholicism, if that can be an ism, uh, Usually a big symptom of that is someone finding their entire identity in their job. And that leads to a full identity crisis if the job was to be taken away. And also it just limits your thinking when you're in the job because you're so afraid, again, of what might be taken away if this job was taken away because that's your whole identity. And so I know I've had the conversation with people where as much as I love my job, I find so much purpose and meaning in my job. I also remind them it's just a job, you guys. Like it's really okay. There's more jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of jobs. There is. <laughs> and and you know, my mom is patient zero for this like whole thing. I've I've yeah. lived very close to this situation my entire life. And till this day, you know, she's in her early 60s. She's still working like a dog. And and I realize like I've let go of kind of the idea of what a happy life looks like for her. And I realized, you know, my parents did what they were supposed to do. They, they, they got out of like religious persecution from Egypt and came here to the United States. And now I have a better opportunity. And so I understand my lens of happiness is very different from her lens of happiness. Um, however, now in her age, she's like really starting to question, you know, she's talking to all these people and they all have retirement plans. And she's like, I don't have a plan. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, because you don't really have close relationships. Like you don't have travel people you could travel with. Like you don't, you know, and so, so even her, you know, after, you know, she's in her sixties is finally kind of waking up to that. And all I could be was an example and kind of a shepherd for her, um, and a safe place for her. But it, I, I mean, I would be lying if I told you it wasn't frustrating to kind of witness you know, I'm sure you've been in the situation where you're like, I, th- I know the exact solution to this problem. It's right here. I'm going to, I want to give it to you. And they're like, no, no, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> and I think it's because she puts her identity in her work hundred percent. She's, she is really good at it. If, if you had to, to, um, describe love and leadership, what does that look like to you? Love and leadership is, I, like accepting everyone for who they are as they are now and then having the ambition to be a to be a resource for them in their spiritual growth that's what i believe love is so love is i accept you in all the things that you are um, good, bad, everything, whatever. I don't even like labeling things as good or bad. I might label them more as conscious or unconscious. Um, but I accept you um, and I'm going to be here when you're ready. Now, I'm not going to stress myself out and try to give you a message that you're not ready to receive. Um, and you may leave the company because you're not understanding it. Um, but when you're ready to come back, because they always do. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I'll be here. I'll be here continuing to, to love you. Um, you know, I, I think that is what love through leadership is, is, is it understanding and kind of um, casting your net uh, infinitely wider on who you love. Um, and so love is so conditional to so many people. I only will love you when you perform well. I will only love you when you show up for me. I will only love you, you know, this, 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 and that. That's not love. I think love is unconditional. And so whether you're performing or you're not performing, you're telling me to go fuck myself, I'm still going to love you. Um, and, and that's it. And there really is no conditions that I set for it. Now, do I constantly work on this every day? Absolutely. But when I'm triggered, I definitely take the time to go into that and say, why is this person triggering for me? And I usually can get to the point and I even do this physical kind of exercise where, you know, whether I'm doing yoga or I'm meditating that I'm like, the person I feel is triggering me, I like imagine the white light from my heart, like shining on them. And that really melts away um, these like judgments or my ego about them. And so I, I really, I think love and leadership is just what it is. It's, it's love, but understanding how we're defining love is really important. That's beautiful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I found it interesting that you use the term spiritual growth. That's not something that we talk about internally in our world. We talk about growth. We talk about self-development. Um, we don't, we, but we don't include this. We don't include the terminology or the, the, the word spiritual in, in that, in our world. I think from the exposure that I've had to highly evolved people, the common thing is that they believe there is a source, a collective, right? We're all connected in some magical way. And so when I say spiritual growth, it's not necessarily like religious. Um, you know, I don't particularly identify with a religion, but I believe Jesus was probably a freaking badass, <laughs> you know, when he was here. <laughs> so was Muhammad, right? And and so were, you know, so was David. And and so I believe that that there were, um, you know, this, even in the Christians, they say like, you know, Jesus is, will come again. Um, that, that Jesus will return. I think I think Jesus has already returned in in many different forms. In Gandhi and Mother Teresa, I think I think that our idea of like Christ and God is just very divided. So when I say spiritually grow, it's it's really kind of growing into who they really are and kind of accessing that infinite and abundant pool that's inside of them. So it's, it's not really like a, re a religious, you know, thing. Sure. And, and I do think that we take, I think that we've commoditized maybe a little too much um, of spiritual and kind of these gurus and things like that. You know, it's becoming trendy to do certain things like ayahuasca. And, you know, I do question like the validity and, and kind of what we're doing with commoditizing that so much. Um but that's really what I mean is just is just f helping them find the way back to themselves, really, I guess, is like a better way to put it. And spiritual being like internal energy, mm -hmm. the, the stuff that makes us us. 
<laughs> or do you mind right. if I you mind if Makes I tear down a, this path a little further? You can, sure. So what do you what do you say to somebody, Katrina, who says, "Listen, my job was to make widgets and make as many widgets as profitably as I possibly can." Why do I give a shit about the spiritual development of somebody on my team? Why does everybody use widgets as an example? It's what we <laughs> learn in economics classes. The widget's the product. <laughs> I'm not even sure. I, I don't even think I know what a widget is. Nobody is that actually a thing? Is that Nobody what you knows what a widget in is. class? Okay. That's kind of like the point. No, no, no. Like in economics classes, that's what okay. you call the product. You call the product a widget. That, that's just don't, Why don't you just call it a product? I don't know. Not the point. This is not the point. Keep not going. Point. <laughs> but, but seriously, like, like if somebody's going to reply to you, yeah, all right. Like that sounds great. But listen, I was hired to make widgets and make as many widgets as I can and efficiently as possible and make as much money as I can. Like what does somebody's spiritual development have to do with that? Well, I think you, I think it's both. I don't think you have to choose. I think that you can, you can help someone on their spiritual um, path and, make a ton of money and optimize your practices. And I mean, there's no choice in that. In fact, I, I actually believe um, that people who can access the source or get into a flow state as often as possible can be far more efficient um, than they already are and far more effective than they already are. Um, you know, they're, when you have tunnel vision, you're like stuck and you're on this path and you're not seeing anything else. And so even one of the mantras that I have is, you know, show me all there is to see. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's why they should care is because even if they only cared about making as much money as possible, um, spiritually growing themselves and, and being a resource for other people makes them even more money and makes, I mean, right. it's a byproduct. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it makes them far more effective, um, and far more optimized if they are evolved as a human. Do you have farther to go down the path? No, no, no. I can, I can, I can pull out. What's that? Well, <laughs> I'm going to tear some more shit up. <laughs> well, that actually brings me, cause the thing I wanted to to have you explain, because I think you're dancing really near it, is actually the work that your company does. Um, and I know you didn't ask us to be like, hey, be a commercial for what you do. But um, what what we've hired you to do uh, with us before and what other companies have hired you to do is to try and quantify the thing you were just describing, which is, you know, if you can, if you can do uh, do certain things that give people a little more of what they need, what does it do to your business? Can you just explain how you go about working with companies and, and what you think about and how you try to quantify it? Because this is, I think, just the the brilliance of what Game Day HR does. Yeah. Um, thank you for saying that. I I believe, you know, there, I, there's a, definitely a dichotomy to me as a person and as the leader of Game Day HR. There's there's a side of me that is very data and analytics based, and that helps me get in the door um, to these companies, right? If I can show you that doing these things improves profitability in your business, I can get in the door. Then I would say the artistic expressionist of Katrina kind of trickles in, you know, slowly. And that's when it, that's when it becomes more about like, doesn't that feel good? <laughs> like, like, do you want to make more money and feel good about doing it? And so that's when I get to have these opportunities 
to love them and help them grow spiritually as a leader. Um, and I'm always recommending books and podcasts and, um, you know, the joke is like my daughter sometimes overhears um, these calls and she's like another therapy session mom. And so I'm like, yeah, and I didn't have to, you know, pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to school for it. Isn't that neat? And they pay me. <laughs> and so um, and so I think that the, the my way into the door and I'll give you another example of a project we do. We do um, an equal pay analysis. Now, I don't think you know, companies aren't just going to be opening their doors and be like, Hey, let me see if you're like a fair and, you know, equal place. No. So instead it gets kind of brought in as like a compensation model. Right. And then through that, I'm able to audit them to determine if they're an equal pay employer. And so I definitely understand what's going to open the door and what's going to slam the door on my face. And I have no pride about it. At the end of the day, I just want to do my work and I want the work to be good. So if I have to mask it, um, you know, in some other kind of business thing, like, Hey, I can help you improve profitability, um, in your company. And that gets me in. I'll take it. I'll take it because, you know, with each company that we've worked for, um, I can proudly say that they get it by the time we're done, they get it. They're a choice employer. They're, you know, I'm happy to recruit people to go work for them um, because they've turned their culture around. And so, you know, improving profitability is my way in. It's proven. It works. Um, we look at our, the financials of our clients at the beginning of our engagement. We look at it at the end of our engagement. We look at it even after we're disengaged to see how things are going. And it works. The work that we do, it's good. And, and, and it's well, it does well for the business. And so essentially that's kind of been my foot in the door is like, I can help you. I can help you with your money. Let me in. <laughs> and feel good about it. No. Oh, and by the way, do you want this poetry book by Rumi? <laughs> <laughs> and the types of things that you end up suggesting with companies, you don't have to obviously tie them to a specific group or anything, but like what types of practices or policies or ideas even do you do you find that uh people end up enacting and including what do they keep doing after you're disengaged because I always feel like that's a big testament so one of uh, kind of the foundational approaches that we have when clients come to us and they say I think we need to have more recognition opportunities in our company my my first kind of pushback is where's the data that says you need to do that? And so what we're seeing a lot of companies do is they're just kind of throwing things against the wall and they're hoping that something sticks. Well, that that not only takes your employees on a roller coaster ride, um, but it's very costly in time and resources. And so I always try to get them to understand we need a vehicle for data. We need to benchmark data and analytics and then use that data to determine what our priorities are going to be. Because every one of the, the nuances about human resources is uh, you're dealing with humans and humans are um, diverse and they're unpredictable and they go through different seasons and chapters in their life all at different times. And so what works for Big B is not going, going to be the same thing that works for uh, you know, men's jewelry line 
right? And so we have to make sure that we're collecting specific data on that demographic um, before I am comfortable moving through initiatives. And so one of the things that we did with, with Big Beat was we did employee engagement surveys and we collected data. And, and through that data, we saw like, it actually wasn't going to cost anything for these stores to do any of these things. It was just either miscommunications, misunderstandings. Um, you know, we needed to just run some market data and that was it. I think the most they spent was they bought like a new cold brew pitcher or something. Yeah. Um, that was one which, of my favorite you know, stories. you make an employee <laughs> happy for like 20 bucks. I don't know how much that costs. And so, um, that's the most common thing we do is we put HR analytics in place and we put the vehicles in order to track those analytics. And so even when we're gone, the system is there and it continues to benchmark and track those analytics. And very often, I think the HR analytics at least start with just asking people, right? Like asking your employees, hey, what would make your life better? That's how we got to the the cold brew pitcher, right? Because they were like, we just don't have enough pitchers. In one of our stores. Okay, we can solve that really fast. (laughs) There are definitely some more obvious um, analytics like turnover rate, um, time to fill, like how long is it taking for companies to fill a position? Um, And that's where we can look at employer branding as something. Um, So there are some analytics that you can just get through like payroll um, or your ATS system. And then I would say employee engagement, it has to be, Surveyed, and one of the common mistakes that HR makes, um, or you know, uh, company culture gurus who've you know never done HR in their life, um, they measure engagement on how what the percentage of participation was. That's not engagement; that's just participation. And so, understanding what employee engagement means and and what questions are you asking in order to calculate what the engagement is, so that you'll get through surveys. Um, you'll and if you have some short form answer sections, that's when you're going to get like more direct feedback from your employees and ensuring that everybody has a voice. Um, and so, understanding that baristas or manufacturing. Um, employees, warehouse employees, they either don't have a work email at all or they're not checking it daily like your other um, corporate positions are. And so you need to be able to provide the tools for them to also participate and have a voice in the survey because those are those employees are incredibly important to the operational support of any company. And so, you know, making ha- putting an iPad out with the survey open for them to take during working time is like, small, but goes a long way. Okay. So I need you to clarify some HR dorkiness, your terms you're using. <laughs> okay. OKR. OKR is objectives and key results. Hmm. So that's essentially like um, a social media coordinator. Instead of having this list of tasks that they should be doing, helping them understand what the point of those tasks are would be the OKR. So, um, you know, posting on social media every day is the task, but why is this important? Well, we want to increase brand awareness. That's an OKR. So what that does is when you put OKRs in place instead of tasks, it allows the person to be like, well, look, we're posting every day, but we're not increasing brand awareness. So it gives them the autonomy and the creativity to look at, okay, should we do maybe three t- posts a week that are more higher quality? 
because they're focused on achieving the objective, not the task. So that's what the objective is. And each position should only have, you know, maybe three to five measurable objectives. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I never heard of it. I don't know. Uh, And then ATS. ATS is an applicant tracking system. Got it. Um, Applicant tracking system. Okay. That was good. Um, one My work here is done. <laughs> Podcast complete. Um, we actually are, we're running short on time. So I have two more things that I want to pick your brain on. One, because you've referenced that you like to recommend things like books or podcasts. Do you want to pick out like one, two, three favorite books or podcasts? Doesn't need to even be leadership or work related. If it is a book of poems, I embrace that too. But one, two, three, top three favorite books or podcasts. Okay. I'm going to go with books, but... Um, one of my most favorite books is Loving What Is by Byron Katie. Um, and I'm on page 73 right now. Are you reading it right now? Page 73. That's where I am. D- did I buy that for you? Is that a book I bought? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I just got through her walking the spouse through jealousy. You know, mm-hmm. that whole conversation, like mind blowing, mm-hmm. you know, like mind blowing. It's yeah, she. I actually got to. I actually got to see her in person last year, um, and I just gave her a big hug because you know reading that book really helped heal the relationship with my mom. Um, so that book really is. I would say the the premise of it is for you to love. It's not what things should be, what you think they're supposed to be, but this is what it is, and learn to love what it is. Um, because it's only causing you pain and like frustration by having this belief, you know? So I'm not done with it, but so far 73 pages in, I'm finding value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's book one, uh, book two. I don't recommend this to like many men, but I think men should read it. And it's called, um, women who run with wolves. Um, it's, um, it's an older book. It's, it was kind of the foundational book to like these big influencers you see today, like, um, Glennon Doyle who wrote untamed. Um, and it, it's really talks about, um, the feminine in a way that is freeing. And so how, how to keep your wildness and how, um, we, you know, we have darkness and we, we're, we predatory, we're predatory and like being the nice girl is just, isn't, it's, it causes like autoimmune diseases basically. And so that book is, was really, um, it's like the Bible for women, but I do think men get a ton of value in it. Um, and, and understanding like, you know, when you try to control your female partner, there's like repercussions (laughs) to it. (laughs) Um, so I really love that one. Um, and then the third, the third book is, um, letting go. Um, I believe it's Stephen Hawkins, not Hawking. Um, it's Stephen Hawkins. And it really just talks about like, do your best work, like do what's in front of you to your greatest ability, but then let go of the outcome. You know, don't do things because you're trying to control what other people like think of you. Um, or it it really just, shows you that like you, you have no control anyway. So why live your life in anxiety? And why don't you just choose a better experience and understand that whatever is happening for you is meant for you. Um, and so do your greatest work and then let go um, and let the universe kind of do the rest. So I would say those are the top three books. I think people would be shocked of like, 
why these three books? What does this have to do with HR and business? Well, I think that if you want a successful, if you want to be successful in HR, you got to be a good person, um, which means you got to do a lot of like your inner work, like removing your own biases and um, removing your own ego from situations, your own triggers. And if you don't do that, you're just not going to be great at HR. Yeah, beautiful. All right. I've got one more question, but Mike, before I do that, did you have anything left that you wanted to? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So one, one more thing. (laughs) And I don't think we've talked about this, but, but Tasha Ulrich, Ulrich wrote a book called insight. Right. And she states in that book, if you think you're self-aware, you're not. Can you unpack that for me a little bit from your perspective? It's like when you think you, when you've learned more, you realize how much you like don't know. Right. I, I think that's the only way I can put it where you realize like um, there's, there's so much that you don't know that you don't understand and that you're not an expert in. And it really helps you like stay in your lane oftentimes. Um, but yeah, I would say the people who think they like know it all know nothing. <laughs> and so, and so I, 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 again, like when I, kind of gave this example about how the most evolved humans that I know, they understand there is something much, much bigger than, than anything that we can possibly grasp onto. I would say that would be the, the second thing is they realize they know nothing. It's a very humbling um, experience. Um, I think it's a definitely a way back to like your own intuitive sense and you like really getting in tune with your body and, and your gut and, and all of those things and how important that is, because sometimes that's the only compass you're, you're going to have because you can't use your brain and logic for certain things. Um, so I think she's 100% right. It's like the more I've, the more I've learned, the more infinite I feel there is more for me to understand and obtain. And I think that may sound exhausting, um, to some people or it may, may be sad or tragic, but I don't know. To me, it's exciting. It's exciting to not know. And I say this in like an unreligious way, but it's like, God always has a better plan. Like whatever you think you, you know, like whatever you think your plan is, like it's, it's nothing compared to what's in store for you. And I think that that's really exciting. Okay. One last question for you, knowing the work that you're doing, um, knowing the, the effort you are putting in with different companies and knowing what you see, because you, I think you have a pretty broad view of the American workplace in general. What do you hope for, for the future of the American workplace? I think historically the majority of the workplace has only made significant change when their backs are like against the wall or we've seen um, like legislation and law go into play. And so they're forced to do it. I would like to see employers using this opportunity to provide certain tools and resources to their employees to help them um, with self-development or developing their levels of consciousness um, before we are kind of mandated by more law and legislation. And so even in HR, like I don't really think some of the laws in California where it's very litigious here, I don't think that it gives us a ton of autonomy as business owners, for example, to allow our employees to make their own schedule. If you're non-exempt, 
um, you basically have to take like a meal period before your fifth hour ends. And then if let's just say you clock out for a couple hours, but if you come back in on the same day, like that, there's like a stretch hours rule. It like, it just becomes more complicated, um, for us to give the autonomy that we want to give to employees. And so, and I do believe it's because of employers who, um, weren't conscious enough to make these changes on their own. And so I would love to see employers proactively make changes instead of, um, you know, retroactively making these changes. And I think one of them is, you know, providing um, resources for their employees that help them feel secure in their personal life, like childcare and um, things like that. Very cool. I just want to thank you. I know we've gone over on time. So thank you for the extra time. And uh, thank you for sharing your heart and your mind. It's a really beautiful combination you've got there of, of brain and heart going on. Um, so just thank you for, for sharing that all with us today, Katrina. I really appreciate it. Oh, you know, I love you guys. Yeah, I pretty much, you. you know, fly to Detroit and stuff. <laughs> Casually shows up at our events <laughs> to be uh, with you guys. So just to hang out, <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate what you all are doing as an organization. I would say that this um, friendship and partnership, and um, you know, I, I feel like I found some of my people. Yeah. Um, you know, through in, at Big B, and it's it's so great to know that. Um, I think I text Mike this after the conference, where I kind of felt like I was on an island. Um, by myself, um, like having these beliefs and, and, and feeling like this, you know, what I was doing was just me believing in it. And then going to, um, you know, the, the summit, I realized I'm not alone in this and, um, there, I do have people out there. And so, you know, you guys are my people. Totally do. And we just have to figure out how to get more people (laughs) to be our people. Yeah. We want more people. That's our quest. (laughs) That is our quest. We'll get there. We will. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Katrina. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, holy smokes, is that an interview, huh? Like, right? (laughs) I, you know, that she just goes places I don't, she always goes places I, I, I never expect somebody to go, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I really enjoyed, uh, the conversation and, and she's able to, she was able to take the work that we're so interested in this love and leadership concept and take it to, to powerful places that, uh, you know, like, like the whole spiritual development thing, you know, that's yeah. not something that we've ever really talked about so much, uh, in, in terms of our, of our work, but, it made sense. It, it, it's like we're talking about the whole human being here, you know, and that's right. a big for for all of us. It should be a big part of what we're doing. Yeah. Within GoDev, I mean, we talk about it as an element of personal vitality, but we, we don't, you know, explicitly call that out when we're talking about embracing growth. We're not just talking about you being better at your job. We're talking about you evolving and and becoming more than you might thought might have thought you could be by joining our company. That's like one of our hopes and dreams for you when you join our company is that you're going to grow in ways that are unexpected. But oh man, yeah, I didn't expect to go to that region of conversation at all. That was not part of the plan today, but it, it. it was beautiful. I know it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I was, it's interesting to hear her talk about 
the her role uh, within organizations. And like if if she has to she's perfectly cool with if I got to tell people my work will make you more money. I'm cool with that. As long as you bring, as long as you end up bringing me in and let me work my magic and let me do my thing. uh, Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's going to make you more money. So great. Uh, And I love the, and by the way, doesn't it just feel good too? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I feel like that's, and that is the, the conversation we get into a lot with business leaders is, um, you know, sometimes it, it can almost feel crass to feel like we have to prove the goodness of what we're trying to do in the world with dollars and cents and stats and data. Um, and we like to just talk about the feel good stuff, but it's both. And it's always got to, it, it kind of has to be both. Uh, and, and Katrina, I, I mean, like I said, she's my hero, but <laughs> she, she thinks a lot in the way I do where it's like, if you do the parts that feel good, if you just care for the person, if you care for their spiritual growth, if you meet them where they're at, by the way, you're going to make more money as an out, like as an obvious outcome. But I can tell you about that first, if that's what you'd like to hear. I just, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. 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 I thought that was great, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, I really do appreciate, I had a really fascinating conversation with a woman last night and it was, you know, um, we were, Katrina was talking about it as well around this, the concept of like being a woman in business, like it's still, it's still like, it's still very much a thing that that we all need to be paying attention to. And, and, and we need to be talking about it. And, and this woman last night was, was, um, I, I don't know if scolding me is the right term, but you know, she had some real strong opinions around some of my positions. And it's like a woman can't do what you're saying, Mike, because if a woman does what you're saying, then they're going to get, they're going to, she's worried that women are going to get um, pigeonholed as, as women. <laughs> Meaning like, like a woman, if a woman comes into the workplace and starts talking about love and leadership and talking about taking care of people and, and nurturing people and so on, that that's going to be perceived as weak if it's a woman. Yeah. And, and so it's like, oh God, like yeah. that's not stuff I think about, but I need to be. Yeah. Oh man. We could do a whole podcast episode on this topic sometime. That'd be exciting. It would Maybe be we'll write that down for season two, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> figure out how to talk about that. But cause it's real. Yeah. There's a thing. All right. Well, any other thoughts on Katrina other than she's fabulous? We love her. No, no. Okay. (laughs) Confirmed. The love is confirmed. Um, We might hear more from her again in the future. For those of you listening, if you like what you heard today and you want to hear more podcast episodes from Mike and I, you can go to loveandleadershippodcast.com. If you're interested in learning more about what Mike is up to, go to michaeljmcfall.com. If you want to follow along with the Life You Love Laboratory here at Bigby Coffee, uh, you can follow us on all the social channels at Life You Love Lab. We would love to have you there and join in the conversation. We want to hear from you guys over there. Mike, as always, this was such a pleasure. I love you. Love you too. (laughs) And everybody else, we will talk to you soon.